to say a couple things before we get to the scripture. So I promise you I will be faithful to what Eric has said. First off, thank you for welcoming and greeting me. Uh, it is a great joy to be here. Uh, I have now been in GAP for five years, and Andrew was one of my first friendly faces, and I think very highly of him. But uh, for those of you that particularly enjoyed uh, uh, your more recent associate pastor, um, I may be partly to blame for Jeremy going out to Union, so <laughs> you may want to withdraw that clapping. Um, but as a guy who spent an awful lot of years in youth ministry, I kind of got all excited when I walked into the room that's down in that corner down there with all those couches and game things and stuff. Um, if you would be willing to pop out your, uh, your uh, sermon outline or note page, you'll see there that, that I like to do an introduction before I get to the text. And so that is my desire and my plan this morning to kind of talk our way into it. And I'm Still getting used to it. I, I like this pulpit, but you're, you're quite right. We need more shelves. Um, we'll, we'll get used to that. And uh, I am trained in, in kind of roaming communication, uh, walking a lot. So this is, it's a heavy feeling and yet a joyful heaviness uh, to be here in this pulpit. And I will seek to serve the Lord uh, with you and for you. Uh, let me start our sermon, though, by asking you to think with me. I like to have us engage as best we can. And this is a question that some of you will be very tired of asking you or answering. You haven't heard this question in a long, long time, and you may think it's irrelevant. But play with me, stay with me, and answer the question anyway as best you can remember. A certain question likely kicks up some memories for all of us, and perhaps there's even some good stories if I had the time to get to know more of you, you could tell me a story about this question. And the question is this, what do you want to be when you grow up? Very soon after children learn to speak more than words and phrases, and I've got four granddaughters under the age of five, and they're learning to deal with this question already, there will likely be someone in their lives, someone like a pop-pop or a nana, who will ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up, little girl? Hey, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want you to think back. How did you answer that question? Do you remember your answer or answers? For many of us, the answer changed from time to time. I had four different majors when I was in college uh, because the answer was changing. But most of us can think back to that first time, and the answer was clear. I want to be a fireman, a doctor, a mayor, a ball player, an artist, a singer, a guitar player, a farmer, a cowboy, a policeman, or something else. Do you remember your answer? I remember fairly vividly that it was the sixth grade Sunday school class at my church. It was the fall quarter, and we were assigned a new teacher, and he was a little bit scary looking. His name was Mr. Samuelson, and he had large Nordic features. Our class included fifth and sixth graders, and as I mentioned, uh, as a sixth grader, I had more experience. I felt like one of the big guys in the room. And we certainly had more experience than Mr. Samuelson did. On day one, he began by having us tell our names 
what school we went to, and then what do you want to be when you grow up? And my memory is that my colleagues in the sixth grade and I did not like that question. That was for younger kids. We did not think of ourselves as young children anymore, not like those teeny fifth graders. But they jumped in, eager to have their new teacher like them. I can still remember two things, partly because Mr. Samuelson won us over. He had an incredible smile, and with each answer, he would smile and say, oh, that's exciting for you. I hope that happens. He was warm. But my standard answer of I want to be a pro bell player for the Boston Red Sox, yes, if I didn't mention I was in New England, uh, no, no uh, feelings toward you Philly fans, I, I, you're fine, we, we're not enemies. Uh, now if you're a Yankee fan in the room, I may have some words later, but <laughs> no, my standard of answer of I want to be a pro, pro ball player for the Red Sox was beginning to weaken in my mind because I was fairly certain I, that was not attainable. By sixth grade, I couldn't hit the fastest fastball anymore. But then I remember this, and maybe this was true for you. I had no idea what I really wanted to be when I grew up. That lack of clarity lasted through high school, and as I mentioned, I changed majors four times. But Mr. Samuelson, let's go back to him. He was both learning about us, and he was setting us up for a lesson from the scriptures. And it's the same lesson that Paul is going to take us to this morning in our Bible passage. That there's something about our future that God is very interested in. And it's not so much what we're going to be or what we're going to do in terms of a career or a profession, but it's who we are and how we care about other people. Mr. Samuelson handled our sixth grade resistance very well. As I said, he smiled at our answers. And over that fall, he pounded in a very important lesson to us. He kept coming back to that. He was a skilled teacher. The message was this. We don't always get to choose what we want to be or where we want to go or what we get to do. There are too many factors that are not in our control. But we do have a lot of control over the kind of person we are and the kind of person we're becoming. We can't always choose what we do, but we can choose who we are. Mr. Samuelson was trying to teach us about character and a certain kind of life, uh, markers of our lives as followers of Jesus, no matter what we did as a career or a job. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul makes much the same argument to all disciples of Jesus that God cares about your character. And then he adds a critical extra piece that we'll see very clearly that it's not just have a good character, but have the character of Jesus. We have the potential to be Jesus in the flesh. And some of us don't always feel like that's true. Again, I like to do long introductions. That was the first one. If you're following the outline, let's connect Paul and the Philippians since we're not doing a long series here. Uh, if you're back here in four weeks, I'm going to pick up right where we leave off today. So if you like reading Philippians, it's, it's pr probably my favorite book. But I want us to connect with Paul and the Philippians. And so again, it's there on the outline. A couple of important matters of background. You may know that Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Philippi. 
It's a Roman outpost city in eastern Greece. So it's not actually in the empire, the, excuse me, in the uh, main uh, country of Rome, but it is an outpost maintaining uh, control over a section of the empire to the east. You can read about Paul and his visit to Philippi in Acts 16. It's an amazing story. It's a great chapter. Lots of wild and crazy things happening in Acts 16, including that while he was there, he and Silas, Paul and Silas, were arrested. And God, in a powerful, miracle way that only God does, gets them out of jail, leading to the conversion of the Roman jailer. He is aware of what's going on in Philippi. Paul is very close to them. He loves them. You can see it from the beginning of the, get, the letter. He writes this letter to them in part because he's concerned about them. Why is he concerned about them? He's concerned about them because they are concerned about him. He's their founding pastor. He's, he had to leave. They knew that from the beginning that he was a missionary. He was a church planter. He was going to go elsewhere. But they have now heard that Paul is in jail probably in Rome, could be Antioch, but it's probably Rome, most scholars agree. And, again, thinking back on their own experience with Paul, he had so much authority that even, I mean, God just wouldn't let him be in jail. And so if they, as they hear that Paul is in jail, they're thinking something must be wrong. Did Paul mess up? Is Paul doing okay? What happened to his mission? How come God didn't break him out again? This is a very human book. It's a very human connection. Paul writes the letter, and in the first chapter, a big part of his emphasis is to say, hey, friends, guys, gals, it's okay. God's got this, and God's got me right here. In fact, because I'm here, there's a whole Roman guard that is responding to the gospel. There are Christians. People are turning to Christ everywhere because I'm in prison. It's okay. And, you know, I might even die. I might not. I don't know. I mean, it's an, he is so open with them in the letter to the Philippians. A couple of key verses, just to make in your notes, if, you, if you're keeping notes, you don't need to look there. Key verses connect us with this letter and the themes. Verse 6 of chapter 1, God who began a complete, excuse me, began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's a key theme in Philippians, that we're always growing. We're always being changed. We're always learning about God's grace to become more like Jesus. And then what I think is the theme verse comes right near the end of chapter 1. If you have your Bible open there, you can turn and look at it there. But there's a simple command that's not so simple. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I would argue that's the theme of the entire letter. And to all those who are reading this letter and to every follower and disciple of Jesus throughout all time, our everyday lives matter to God. We are to live them in a certain way. Not to earn salvation, but because we are saved. Because we have been loved with an incredible love. We've already spoken of it throughout our worship time today. The next three chapters, Paul takes time to describe what does that life look like? After that very verse there in 127, he introduces them again to the idea that 
living a life manner worthy of the manner of the gospel may mean suffering. In fact, it will mean suffering. I don't know how your theology is doing these days, but can you handle a theology where suffering is described as a gift? That's what Paul does in 129. It's been granted or gifted to you to suffer for him. It's a good thing. That's where we pick it up. And so now we are ready for the, to hear the word of God. Your Bibles, you can open to Philippians 2, and please join me in a quick prayer before we do that. Lord Jesus, this is your word, and we are your people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I, uh, my font here in this one's a little too small, so I've got it typed up here in nice big font so I can read it. Hear the word of the Lord. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same, or excuse me, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's take a few minutes to walk through the flow of the passage again. The outline is there for you. First up is in verse 1. We have the word if, and most of the time, if is used to describe a condition which may or may not be present. But even in English, the word if can be used in two ways. When there, we don't know some factor, like will there be any tickets left for the ball game, we might say, well, if we get tickets, then we'll go. That's conditional. The other way that if can be used, though, is when we want to add a sense of emphasis or persuasive energy to a statement in which the condition is not really questionable. It's a description of reality. For instance, we might ask the question, why are you bringing a raincoat if it's a sunny day, if it's sunny outside? The if there is descri describing a current clear condition. 
It's not really a condition of possibility or change in the weather. In the Greek, the same is true. When Satan tempted Jesus, he used a form of the same kind of descriptive if when he challenged our Savior by saying, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan knew full well who Jesus was. It was not an if. It was an if to poke him. He really meant since. He was challenging him. That's a long way of saying that Paul is using the descriptive form of the word if. What he's doing is telling something to those Philippian friends of his that I think we need to hear loud and clear. To be reminded that God has built something in between you, among you, in your midst. I heard a lot of conversation. Not all of you. Some come in quietly, and that's fine. But you're a family here. Every congregation of followers of Jesus has encouragement in Christ. Has comfort from the love of the body of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We have participation in the spirit. Whether we're dancing, hand raisers, or we're quiet, we have the same spirit. We have affection. We actually have the ability to have sympathy, to feel what another feels, to share in joys and sorrows, to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn, and celebrate with those who celebrate. This is the work of Christ in a body of followers. Paul is encouraging them there, here to keep living these attributes. That is a manner worthy of the gospel. What he's saying to them is, you've got the evidence. Now keep going. And you can just picture him smiling while he's sitting in prison, encouraging the one who would read that letter. Second, in verse 2, Paul calls for and describes the importance of unity, unity of mind. He connects it to the experience of joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love in full accord and of one mind. Paul says one mind twice because it's important and, frankly, because it's hard. We live in a world where we're keenly aware that we have differences of opinion. We have matters where it's difficult to find unity. It's much easier to take a cruel position, to write an angry post, to comment and be very critical. Unity matters to God. We all know it. We suffer when unity is missing in the body. In our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we think unity is so important, we have defined what we call seven essential things. This is the heart of our unity, theologically speaking. These are the non-negotiables. But even when talking with someone who doesn't agree or understand or affirm them, we can still be friendly. We can seek to be kind. But our unity is clear. If you need a reminder, check with one of your elders. They can track down the seven essentials of our faith. But those seven essentials point then to another fact that our denomination tries to live out as faithful to this passage. That after those seven things, every other topic, every other debatable idea, 
is called a non-essential. And there needs to be room for us to agree to disagree. There must be room to agree to disagree. Unity in Christ Jesus is one of the keys to deep joy together. We need to remember that in Christ we are all forgiven and all loved. Third verse gets to the way of what I'm calling the way of the world. Selfish ambition, and then again in the way the grammar's written, you could say selfish conceit. The old NIV that I grew up with, and actually at one time I, I memorized these verses, said selfish ambition and vain conceit. If you're over the age of 50, maybe you remember that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or selfish vain conceit. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. But God has revealed that selfish ambition and vain conceit are real problems. And yet think about the world that you're being called to live in right now. Selfish ambition is applauded. It's honored. It's recognized. But friends, selfish ambition leads to rivalry, leads to comparison traps, horrible self-image problems. We either get stuck looking at those who we think are up somewhere and we consider ourselves bad or worse or less, or we seek to bring them down because they're up. Conceit or vain conceit comes when we look down on others and make ourselves feel better because, oh, well, at least we're not like them. And we forget that Jesus died for us when? While we were yet sinners. Paul is describing a human phenomenon here. It's the comparison trap is what I call it, but sometimes it can be thought of as a comparison ladder. The image of ladder is clear based on the words he uses when he gets to describing Jesus. Perhaps it's an economic scale based on perceptions of wealth or a social scale based on popularity or influence or an athletic scale based on who's on the travel team and who's on the rec league team. A political scale of power or influence. All of these are places where we get caught looking up and looking down. We look up and we judge ourselves. We look down and we judge others. It's a lonely and tiring way to live. Paul says that Jesus came to provide a much better way. That way is introduced there at the end of verse 3. It's humility. Counting others as better than yourselves. So whether, we, whether they are better than us is irrelevant. We're to consider others as better than us. And then Paul moves on to define parts of humility. Verse 4, looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's one very good definition of humility. Be on the lookout for the real needs of other people. But there are more definitions. I want to give us a couple descriptions here, because this humility thing is very important. It's in humility that we're modeling our lives after our great example, Jesus. C.S. Lewis gave this simple definition. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. 
perhaps that's less in volume or less in quantity. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we can also get a good definition of humility by considering a certain historic example I came across uh, a couple months ago. I hope it's helpful to you. An example of a person who may have lost the quality of humility completely. Adolf Hitler rose to power over many years. One of those on his inner circle was a man named Albert Speer. And Albert Speer documented his experience with Hitler in a book titled Inside the Third Reich Memoirs. Albert Speer would later eventually be convicted of war crimes at the Nuremberg trials, and he served over 20 years in prison. He died in 1981. Speer wrote the book after his imprisonment. He described Hitler's rise to power with a phrase that was worth listening to. He said, it felt like we were observing the evolution of a court. People were falling in line, making favors, getting on the inside, and doing whatever Hitler asked. And then Speer wrote this line, Hitler put up no visible resistance to the evolution of a court. That was the beginning of a complete and horrific lack of humility. Friends, we still live in a world where we can be tempted to allow the evolution of our own court. I have a friend who is very successful in his field. He's in business, he's very wise. He was selected to become the leader, the CEO of a mid-sized growing, large, uh, growing larger company. He had the wisdom to go to the outgoing CEO and ask for advice. He told me that the first line the former CEO said was this, Tim, your jokes are about to get a lot funnier. That was this man's way of saying, beware. There's a court that's about to rise up around you if you're not careful. People will want to serve you. People will want to run errands for you. People will want to get inside right from day one. Resist the forming of a court. Friends, again, I tell you, it's my absolute conviction to all of us, and I'm preaching to me. Dictators and CEOs are not the only ones who fall prey to this phenomenon. It happens to pastors, elders, community group leaders, worship leaders, teachers. Everyone is at risk of the temptation of allowing the evolution of a court. Jesus understood this pattern powerfully. He instructed his disciples over and over again, don't seek power and influence. Luke 22, in, in Luke 22, verses 25 and 26 he reminded them as they were just walking and talking together. The kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over the Gentiles, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who, do you know the word? Serves. 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 The leader is the one who serves takes the position of humility. And then Jesus capped it off the night before he died, as we'll celebrate in just a few minutes. Taking...
Before he took those elements, though, he took one of the lowest human jobs ever created. In the first century, he washed their dirty, dusty, ugly feet. That's humility on display. That's the better way. Paul then writes out quite poetically, this may well have been a hymn from the first century that he's referring to. We don't know what the early church exactly sounded like in worship, but he says, Jesus is your example and my example. We have the ability to be like him. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he is described. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. He's describing that ladder. He's not holding on to the high rungs. He had every right to take the highest position. Why? Because he was the highest. Jesus created the whole world. God spoke and it happened through him. He was the Lord of all creation, the King of kings. And he went down. Jesus chose to serve those who were not only not his equal, but he went all the way down to the bottom, the bottom of the economic scale, the bottom of the social scale, the bottom of the political scale, the bottom of the human scale. He went down in human form in verse 8 and humbled himself. He had that ability and he gives it to us. He became obedient to his father. That's an important key. Not all forms of humble service are, what are, are the call that are in front of us. But when God gives you a chance to serve, it's probably from him. Jesus went down to the point of death, but not just any death. The worst death that was known in society at that time. Death on a cross. He washed dusty, dirty feet. Then he died the worst death possible in order to serve you and to serve me, his enemies. That is humble servant love in action. In action. Paul then moves on to close the section with words of a doxology, words of praise and exaltation. They're a description of what God the Father did for God the Son and a description of a sure future coming day. Oh, may that day be soon. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every other name. And then this great promise, there is a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, what a day that will be. As we close the sermon and move toward communion, I want to try to keep it simple. I want to ask you to think back again. You may not remember what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up, but like my Sunday school teacher was saying, we need to think bigger. Whatever job you have now, Jesus has a character trait for you. Jesus wants us to be humble servants. Following Jesus, our example means that we are to resist the evolution of a court around us. We need to be careful to never set ourselves up to be treated differently than anyone else. Don't let anyone push you into that thinking. 
Oh, you're special. You can get this. Maybe, but probably not. When people put a pedestal in front of us, let's not climb on. In humility, let's surround ourselves with truth-tellers, those who will help us lovingly be aware of our blind spots and our areas where we need growth. I can tell you, pastors have challenge. There are pedestals not just like this one where we're invited to step up, and oh boy, is it dangerous. We need to have truth-tellers more than we need pedestal pushers. And let's always be the people who look for opportunities to serve, particularly with this in mind. Think about this. Look for a way you can serve someone who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. That's Jesus' kind of servanthood. That's the mindset of humility. So I ask you, how can you serve right now? In your home, think about that. You live in a particular place. There are probably other people who live near you or with you. Can you serve them? What about your neighborhood, your school, your job? You go to a place of work. Can you have eyes to see a way to serve someone there? A team, a club or organization, a church, etc. When we serve like the real Jesus, we reflect the real Jesus. What would it be like if all of us today found a way to serve somebody this afternoon to their surprise and they couldn't do anything to thank you except offer words? As we serve, we can also remember that we are promised something very great, that the world, through selfish ambition and vain conceit, really doesn't know about. We live in a world that's trying to pursue happiness. Jesus offers us something better. He offers us joy. Joy is that sense of peace, that sense of calm. It is and often will be very pleasurable but it's not the same as happiness, and it can come even during something that's unhappy. Paul, as he's writing this, is sitting in a prison, well aware that his death is imminent. His death is coming, and he writes this letter, and one of the great themes is joy. How can he know that joy? Because he knows Christ Jesus. He is serving Jesus. May we know true joy as we serve Jesus in our real lives. Only Jesus has promised the peace, joy, and rest that the world we live in is looking for. Friends, let's be following our example. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us what you want us to do based on what we've heard in Philippians 2. And then, Lord, give us the courage to do it. Help us, Lord, to apply these words, to be doers of the word in at least one specific way this week. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.